Welcome to Revolution Podcast, a place where we discuss the Bible, culture, faith, and why it matters for you. I'm Quinn, and this is my co-host, Chase. And if you're looking for a podcast that explores the revolutionizing power of Christ in your life, then this is the show for you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Revolution Podcast. Today, we've got quite an episode planned, but Quinn, I'm going to throw this over to you. Give us an introduction. Hit it with us like you're slapping us in the face with like a wet, cold fish fresh from the ocean. What are we talking about today? Come on. I was not prepared for that. It's all good. Um, Oh, man, we got a jam-packed episode for y'all today. We are continuing our series on apologetics. I love apologetics, dude. Man, we got a great episode. (laughs) It's a a university that specializes in apologetics. Keep going. Okay, sounds good. Um, Yeah, so if you guys didn't listen to our last episode, I encourage you to tune in. We talked about how do we know God exists. Mm. And then next week, we're going to be looking at how do we know the Bible is reliable? Yeah. And then, but today we're going to focus in on the now and we're looking at how can a loving God allow suffering? Wow. We've got some great stuff with you, uh, for you guys today. We are looking at some different points of view, um, mm-hmm. on suffering. So we're going to be looking at the point of view of atheism. Um, and then we're going to look at Buddhism and then we're going to look at the Christian alternative and see how Christians view suffering. And so with that, um, yeah, Chase, why do you think this question of suffering matters to us? Uh, Yeah. So this one, I mean, you guys are listening. So I I assume there's a reason, uh, if you're hearing these words, uh, why you clicked on listening to this episode. Um, the thing with suffering is that of all the things that you might experience across your life, the one thing that you will have in common with everybody else is suffering. Because mm-hmm. the common the common human experience is to suffer. More than anything else, everybody experiences suffering. And so the very natural question, if, if you are uh, thinking about um, God, if you do believe in God, if you're questioning God, is how could a loving God allow suffering? And that's just a question that people have been wrestling with for forever. I mean, some entire religions, I think, like Buddhism, which we'll get into later was created specifically to try to resolve um this problem of evil and this problem of suffering and it's a problem and and you know you can make it very big and you can think about it on a grand scale like that but it's also a very very personal question at least i know it is for me um because when i was younger uh man this was like oh almost eight years ago now um like a huge part of my testimony, for those of you who don't know, I, I grew up in a Christian family. And then it was largely because of this question that I, I walked away um, from the church. I, I said, God, I, I don't believe in you. And even if you were real, uh, you must be like absolutely terrible. And um, the reason for that is because I, I lived a very sheltered life. I was homeschooled and a Christian. And so, uh, you know, you don't get out much and you don't see very much that's wrong with the world. Um, but when I was like 10, 11 years old is when I started to meet people, people who became my friends who did have very difficult lives. And, I, and there's this one friend of mine in particular. Um, I remember I'd, I'd gotten to know them and I didn't know any of this was going on, but um, I slowly started to notice um weird things happening with her, right? She'd be drawing or writing and suddenly her hand would seize up and her, her, the pencil she was using would fly across the room. Or she'd be walking and all of a sudden she just she just had to sit down uh, and she, she'd stay sitting for a while and her legs would shake a lot. Um, 
And so one day I asked her about it, um, and I was like, "Like, what's up with this?" And it turns out she has a uh, a chronic disease um, that doctors aren't really they don't really know what it is, um, but she has these very intense kind of isolated seizures in her body, um, and she's in extreme pain a lot of the time, um, has very bad spatial awareness, and yeah. Anyways, uh, I remember hearing that, and I was like how could that happen to one of my friends? Um, how could that happen to somebody I care about? Um, and then you grow up and you realize the world isn't uh, such a nice place. And in fact, people who live in very sad, hard, desperate situations are much more common than people who live in nice, shiny, good ones. Um, and so just over the, like the next year or so, um, that kind of piled up more and more for me and I, I struggled and I was like, no, like, like, like the God has to be real. Um, but just in the face of the bleak evil pain that was life, um, I realized like, I was like, there's no way, um, God cannot be real. And if he is, then he, he is the evil one. And so I walked away from it all. Um, and maybe there are people like, like, either yourself, you listening, or people you know who, who are in a similar situation. Evil, the, the, the problem of evil, more than almost anything else over the centuries, has driven people away from God. Uh, and it's a very difficult problem, and, and that's because it is philosophically hard to wrap your head around, but then it is also intensely personal. Um, so that, that's part of the reason why we want to dive into this today. But mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing your testimony with us. Uh, yeah. Small bits. Small yeah. Bits. Small bits. Not not the whole thing right yeah. now. Um, yeah. And so you, you kind of mentioned how you you walked away from it. And mm -hmm. something that, I mean, we've talked about is that you, you ran to um, atheism in a sense, right? Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. Um, and kind of, yeah. How does atheism... Uh, stack up against suffering what is that what does that kind of look like yeah uh yeah so what's interesting and i noticed this again i didn't realize this in the moment but years of reflection and i noticed it in other people too is that our first inclination often and th this uh, ties into this the problem of suffering but also broadly in our lives is that our first inclination isn't to press into the solution we already have and try to make it work our inclination is to run to something else to solve our problem so rather than sticking it out and uh trying to really see if what we have going is going to work we just run away um to something else and so that was very much me and that's a lot of people and so i ran from uh belief in god straight to atheism just and that, that's a big difference, right? Like mm -hmm. when you're living your life, um, believing in God or not believing in God makes a very, very big difference. So anyways, this kind of discussion frames my journey a little bit as um, I was a Christian, uh, then ran away from belief in God. And then we'll see what happens because uh, over the years, um, and we're skimming a lot of this, right? We're not going to take years to unpack all this mm -hmm. stuff for you guys. But um, a lot of the content we're talking about was years of thinking and reading and trying to figure this out. Um, and so how does atheism uh, try to reason with the problem of evil? There's two things, uh, or I, there's one thing to 
um, say right off the bat is that there are two types of atheists generally mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, there are those who are intellectually dishonest and those who are intellectually honest. And usually as an atheist, you start off as an intellectually dishonest one. And then if you're lucky and you're, you know, you, you got some people to push you along, you can become intellectually honest as well. And so I ran right to the intellectually dishonest camp. And I'll explain why I called them that in a little bit. Um, but the intellectually dishonest atheists will say, um, they, they acknowledge evil exists and they say, Therefore, there must be no God, and we humans, we've got to do something about the problem ourselves. Evil is an integral aspect of the world, and it cannot be escaped, so it must be overcome. Uh, And that's a hard place to be. Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, has a quote. He says, all man's problems were created by man and can be solved by man. And that's that's a good way of thinking about this, is that... Mm -hmm. Evil comes from us, and it can be stopped by us as well. And you see this uh, very uh, interestingly uh, from the dawn of the 20th century and a little bit before, is um, if you track history and you track philosophy and if you track literature that was growing in that age, people become very focused on this thing called utopia. And utopia, has, I mean, have you read um, Hunger Games or Maze Runner or Divergent yeah. or any of those? Yeah. Those things are called dystopian right? They're dystopian novels. Mm -hmm. And so utopia is the opposite of that word dystopia, right? The dystopia worlds are all grim, dark, gray, kind of end of the world, governments in control, very, very bad place to be. That's dystopia. Utopia is the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. It's the best possible world. It's this fantastic place. Um, And so we as a species, as uh, humans, we became very fixated on this idea of utopia. Um, and, and you know, people have been dreaming about something like that, like a perfect world for a while. But um, with the Enlightenment um, and then coming up to the 20th century, a lot of people had cast off uh, belief in God. Um, atheism was becoming much more in fashion. People believed now that we've kind of tossed off the chains of religion, we're free to... Um, explore our true potential as humans and so 20th century dawns stage is set and people are ready to test this theory and then over the next hundred years we realize that we are in and of ourselves cruel helpless hopelessly evil completely despicable um, anybody who thinks humanity is able to create a utopia is capable of overcoming evil of our own accord. Literally, I, I swear, you you do not know anything that happened between the years 1900 and 2000. Um, utopia does not exist, and it most likely never will um, of our own accord. Uh, the reason I say that is... Um, all the, all the genocides that took place over those hundred years, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the USSR, uh, Soviet Russia, Maoist China, um, some of the most evil governments that ever, ever exist. I'd throw the Nazis in there and Hitler, but they're a little bit weird. They're definitely, they, they hated the church, um, but they had this weird spirituality around them. So for the sake of fairness, I won't include them in the atheistic camp. Uh, but the Soviets and then the Mao certainly were very... Um, against the idea of any god or supernatural and they were next to hitler the most evil governments um, most evil leaders to ever exist but they were actively trying to create a utopia stalin thought he was ushering in the utopia mao thought he was ushering in the utopia and they were atheistic to the core and they were so so evil i think uh, between the just between um stalin and mao i think they had a uh, hundred million corpses 
a hundred wow. million dead people. That's crazy. Um, and and numbers like and the problem with numbers like that is that they're too big for us to wrap our heads around, and so they don't. The impact of that doesn't hit us. But I mean, if you've lost someone that you love, um, you know how that just shatters people's lives, right? And it, it's not just one life that's lost. It is dozens of lives that are in some cases broken and definitely impacted negatively by this mm-hmm. one life that's broken. And yeah. you think of two people, right? Who have that impact. And you think of 10 people have that impact, a hundred, a thousand, and it's a hundred million people who died because of these two governments. Yeah. It's, it's hard to wrap your head around the evil. And it wasn't just like, <laughs> it was it, a lot of them weren't even, casualties of war which is one way we like to try to pass off casualties even though that is just as evil as any other death but these were um concentration camps these were death camps these were um assassinations murders engineered famines um stalin and stalin engineered a famine in ukraine in the ukraine um purposely to starve the people there um killed millions of people And, and the situation was so desperate that parents um sorry this is a bit explicit um but like like people were like boiling their children to eat in order to survive that that that's the kind of um situation this man was creating right um there's a writer named albert camus who calls evil humanity's never-ending defeat um because it just goes in cycles yeah the distant past Mm -hmm. we were very evil we thought we were getting better um and we learned very very clearly that we are not that there is something about evil and suffering that you can't overcome. Um, You see this in a lot of uh, different mythologies of the world where monsters um, and evil spirits, even when they're defeated, are often resurrected again. And that just represents this cycle of evil coming back and back and back, and you can't stop it. Um, So that's the intellectually dishonest place of atheism. Uh, It just digs you deep into a hole. Uh, where you cannot defeat the problem of evil, which isn't a good place to be. Um, intellectually honest. Okay, so now, now I'm going to explain why I make these two categories. Are we tracking so far? Is there any where you want to jump in there? Or no, I, I make, think it's just kind of like, just to kind of reframe that. It's kind of yeah. um, here in our show notes, we, we kind of got like, for the intellectually dishonest, they yeah. acknowledge evil and yeah. they they try to defeat it, yeah. right? Um, but they can't. Yeah. And that's because we're imperfect people. We're imperfect people, yeah. Evil evil is one of those things that we cannot overcome. Uh, okay, so why do we make this distinction between intellectually dishonest and intellectually honest? So uh, when somebody is intellectually honest, they think very critically about things and they understand precisely what they're saying. So an intellectually um, honest atheist, when they say that evil exists, Uh, the first question that they will ask themselves is, what is evil, right? They want to know what they're talking about. And um, you'll very quickly see when you think through that and you don't believe in God, um, that because they don't believe in God and they don't believe in a higher power, that there is no difference between right and wrong. We touched on this a little bit in our last episode uh, on the moral argument. Um, But if you believe that there is just, uh, if you just believe in materialism, right? There's no supernatural, just the natural world. Um, I'm going to bet like everything that you are um, a believer in um, 
the ev- in evolution and the natural selection theory of evolution, right? That's how life has progressed. Um, if that is what you believe, and and you believe there is no god or higher power or um, any anything outside of this world, then in the vehicle of natural selection, death is not only natural. Death, if you can call anything good, you can call death good, right? Because death furthers the continuation of a species. Death is the vehicle by which um, species become more advanced, more complex, better, right? According to evolutionary theory, we humans exist because so many of our ancestors passed away and only the best ones survived. So the only true morality, if you could even call it that, in, in this view is survival of the fittest, strong over the weak. And so then you turn your eyes to some of the horrible things that have happened in the past. Like, let's take the Holocaust. The Holocaust, because you can just say the ones who survive are the strongest, right? And so going by the evolutionary model, and I'm not endorsing at all, but just as an example, going by the evolutionary model, the Nazis were stronger than the Jews that they put in the concentration camps. And so by the evolutionary model, the fact that they were able to kill so many of them off was a good thing so that the best of humanity could survive and reproduce and then pass on those genes. Um, But we all know that that was evil, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's the point. Um, Oz Guinness wrote a book called Unspeakable, Facing Up to the Challenge of Evil. And he's got a quote there. Uh, He says, not only is natural selection utterly blind to evil and suffering, but it actually favors the selfish gene and the survivalist ethic of might makes right. And, And that idea of might makes right, that is the heart of evil in every oppressive regime ever, right? That's what Stalin believed. That's what Hitler believed. That's what Mao believed. That's what Pol Pot believed. That's what, um, Oh, I can't remember uh, the guy. Th- there's this one um, genocidal maniac that everybody likes to wear in their T-shirts because they think he was a good guy. Um, che Guevara, Che Guevara, he believed the same thing, right? He killed so many people and everybody thinks he was great. Um, so, but the, the point here is that, um, you know, if everything is only natural, um, the, the right and wrong are metaphysical categories, right? They're, in a sense, supernatural categories. They're above the physical world. Um, simply, strictly, materially speaking, you cannot call something right or wrong. It simply is. Right and wrong are categories that exist above matter and fact. And so if, if you don't believe in God, because um, you don't believe in the supernatural, you don't believe in the metaphysical, then you can't believe in right and wrong. And if there's no right and wrong, and this is why I call these people intellectually honest atheists, because these honest atheists quickly realize that life doesn't actually have any meaning. Um, and I'm not spitballing. I'm not making this up. Um Again, go read literature from the 20th century. Uh, look up the word existentialism. Um, it, 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 this is a well-established thing. And, and lots of people, they own up to it. And, and I respect um, thinkers who are able to do that, who say, yeah, there's no God. And yeah, life doesn't have any meaning. Um, the problem, again, with that is that we we all have this profound sense that life does have meaning, yeah. um, that there is right and wrong. And so that just strikes right at the heart Um of this, And so I would say neither of these two views, um, wh- whether you don't think through things and you stay intellectually dishonest, um, or if you think things through and you become intellectually honest in your atheism, neither of these things satisfy our souls. And um, in fact, when we think through the atheistic perspective, honestly, it actually points us back towards God because we realize there is a subjective right and wrong that can exist within this worldview. And so that was kind of my journey of realizing that morality did actually objectively exist and because of that necessarily there must be a higher power Mm -hmm. um yeah anything 
jump in there? No, I, yeah, you really hammered those two home. I think you got those both. Um, yeah. yeah. And so as we've, have we look at atheism and chase kind of wrapped that out, um, wrapped it up there. Um, yeah, we want to look at another argument, which is Buddhism. Um, yeah. And this one is more new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, why why doesn't Buddhism hold up to suffering, Chase? Yeah, yeah. And so, so the reason we want to gauge with this is I, I, I don't know how many people who are going to be listening to this are Buddhists or anything. Um, but the reason we want to engage with this, and only, only briefly, is that um, not... There's a large part of the world, the Eastern part of the world, they kind of have their own family of faiths, um, Buddhism, but also Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, all of those kind of go together. Uh, we'll be focusing, like we'll say Buddhism specifically, but a lot of those other faiths tie in there as well. So you, you quickly realize a huge portion of the world actually takes this view um of the world. And so, you know, we want to engage with that a little bit and say, does this hold up um, to the problem of evil and suffering? And so the challenge with Buddhism is actually quite simple. And so I, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on it. Um, right. Buddhism acknowledges, yes, uh, evil is real and suffering is real, um, but it's really all a matter of perspective. Um, Buddhism says the universe is one being, um, and not just the universe, but me, you being part of the universe, we're all part of this one being. Um, but we as people are striving for this individuality um, from the oneness of the universe. And it's in this striving to be individuals, uh, to be autonomous, to cease um, connection to sever connection from the rest of the universe. That's what causes us to experience evil and suffering. And so peace is found by um, getting that oneness with the universe of ceasing to desire to be an individual. Um, there's an old Buddhist text uh, that essentially gets to the point that desire is the source of all suffering. Desire is the source of all evil. So if you can cease having desires, you can cease suffering. Um, Yeah, the path to enlightenment entails learning to lose all your desires, to loose yourself from the cares of this world, and you reach nirvana. So the best Buddhism can offer us is that we'll fade away from this world and leave it to itself, and that ultimately you and I will also just fade away. Uh, We must learn to cease caring. And of course, it it is... And yeah, of course, it is hard for us uh, to not care... um, when we see all the injustice and injustices in the world, Mm -hmm. Uh, you look at some of the stuff that is, I mean, evil stuff happens in our own um, societies uh, from school shootings um, to people who are wrongly convicted and sentenced to prison for life. Um, Mm -hmm. And you look across the world and there's horrible things happening to you. Look at the stuff that happens in the Congo, uh, the statistics on um, rape that are there uh, in Afghanistan, some of the laws that are put in place against women. Um, None of us, wants to not care about those things. Those things bother us. Um, we, we have the sense that we want to make the world right, and that's a good thing. Um, those desires are part of us. We're wired to care. None of us wants to stay silent in the face mm-hmm. of that kind of evil. Um, and we shouldn't. We, of course we shouldn't. Um, if, you, if you see evil and you are capable of doing something about it, but you don't, we all acknowledge that that makes you part of the problem. Yeah. Right. And so, again, we find very quickly with this perspective that um, 
Uh, it doesn't satisfy us. It, it doesn't fit in with these intrinsic, with this intrinsic knowledge we have of the universe. Um, and so uh, we we turn to atheism. We look at that. It does not work. Okay, let's not run all the way back to Christianity. Let's look at the next um, big group of faith faiths people have. Okay, that doesn't quite work either. Okay, we've given those two deep, honest looks. Let's do the same honor for Christianity. Let's go to the Bible um, and let's see if Christianity actually has a good, robust answer to the question, how could a loving God allow suffering? So that's kind of where we're winding up right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, yeah, and with this, we, yeah, we want to, um, yeah, set it up and kind of all ask the question again. Um, how can a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, um, yet, allow evil to exist and yeah and so chase we got we got chase said we were gonna look at the bible um i think we want to look at the the story of lazarus today um yeah chase you want to kind of frame that for us totally yeah so um simply to to get it out there there's a great book called confronting christianity by a lady named rebecca mclaughlin it is a phenomenal book absolutely recommend you guys read it uh she takes the 12 hardest questions you can ask about christianity and she gives her answers to them and we are in large part uh using we're we're using a lot of her material on this question because i remember um almost a year ago now when I read um, her chapter on suffering for the first time and it blew me out of the water um, because I'd read I'd read tons of stuff on suffering. I read everything I can get my hands on and hers included um, this explanation that I'd never heard before. She used all the f- familiar pieces, but she framed it around the story in the Bible and went one step further, which we'll get to. So anyways, if you want her th- this um, explanation given in her words uh, with the mean Quinn parts taken out, you can go read uh, her chapter in her book. Um, but since we're examining the Christian perspective, we are going to see what the Bible has to say about mm-hmm. suffering. So we're going to be in John chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses uh, 17, 17 sorry, through 27, and then we're going to unpack this a little better. So um, just to set this up a little bit, Jesus in his ministry on earth um, became friends with this family that was made up of a man named Lazarus, who was quite close with Jesus. They were friends, and Lazarus's two sisters, Martha and Mary. And one day Lazarus um, became deathly ill, and Jesus was away. But messengers were immediately sent to him because Jesus in his ministry was quite well known for performing miraculous healings. He had healed many, many sick people. And so messengers were sent to Jesus uh, to come back home, to come to Lazarus um, to heal him. And Jesus got the messages, but he didn't come. He could have. He could have made it in time, but he didn't. He waited. And then after Lazarus had passed away, after Lazarus had succumbed to the illness and died, then Jesus came with his disciples. So we jump in, in the middle of the scene, when Jesus is coming up to the place where Lazarus is buried. So verse 17 of chapter 11 of the gospel of John. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. 
And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So the big question for the Bible is how can God be all-powerful, like you said, Quinn, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and yet allow evil to exist? Let me, let me propose a counter question. And this question, I, I blew me out of the water the first time I heard it. Can you prove to me that God does not have perfectly good reasons for allowing the evil that happens to take place? Nobody can answer that question because that's that's something we cannot prove. Um, but then the, the, the immediate next question that you might ask is, okay, granted, I can't prove that, but what could God be aiming at? Um, what, what good thing could God be aiming at? And Martha's dialogue in this brief passage gives us a hint. She talks about the resurrection on the last day. Let me flip quickly to the book of Revelation. So Revelation 21, verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So when Martha talks about the resurrection on the last day, when she, when, when she is confronted with this suffering in her life, she places her hope in this resurrection on the last day, when God will take away all pain, all suffering, usher in this, this new heaven and new earth and new Eden. I mean, let, let's, let's dive into the nature of evil a little bit, because that's important. for If we're, if we're going to be talking about evil and suffering, we need to know what we're talking about. Um, God created the world perfectly. Right? Go back mm-hmm. to Genesis. God made the world perfectly, and he put a man and a woman in it, and they were in perfect relationship with him. And he said, this is very good. And they saw God face to face, and they walked with him in the garden in the cool of the evening, and everything was perfect. And yet, Adam and Eve, with this free will God gave them, made a choice to sin. They made a choice to rebel against God. They made a choice to place themselves at the center of the universe, to make everything about themselves, to run away from God's perfect design. And and that has spoiled the rest of creation. Evil is not a force outside of the world. It's easy. I mean, mean, in Lord of the Rings, it's easy to picture evil as like Sauron versus um, Gandalf, right? Like dark versus light. Um, Or to think of uh, the yin and the yang, right? Like darkness and light perfectly balanced. That's not what it is. Darkness is powerful, yes. But but God is, is so much, so much more powerful. And evil is not even necessarily this force outside of ourselves. It is, it is not a force outside of the world. It is not a thing in the same way light is a thing. Darkness is not a thing. It's the absence of light, right? Evil is the same way. Evil is not a thing. It's the corruption of good. And we see that in the garden narrative in Genesis. Evil is a corruption of God's perfect world. And ultimately, it's a corruption that rests inside of us. Um, I'll quickly tell a story of a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, We're going back to Soviet Russia. He was a soldier in the Red Army under Joseph Stalin. Um, And then later on, because of some of his more political writings, um, he was arrested. And he's being dragged off to the gulags, which were work and death camps um, that most did not survive and he was being dragged off there by soldiers and and this thought goes through his head. He's he's, um, thinking about how nice it would be if 
you could just gather up all the evil people and get rid of them so the good people could live um, by themselves. And this is what he says. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and, if, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to, to destroy a piece of his own heart? Mm. And, and the beautiful thing about as you go through the rest of the Bible from Genesis, the beauty of the biblical answer is that even though Alexander is right, Solzhenitsyn is right, none of us can or even wants to destroy that evil piece of our own heart. But the beauty is that Christ does that for us, right? And so with Martha, we look ahead to the day when we and all of creation are restored to that perfect relationship with him that Adam and Eve had in the garden. We're going back to the garden. Um, how do we know that God is working evil things for that good purpose? Um, the story of Lazarus, I think, proves that very well. But like, let's look to the cross. Yeah. Um, Jesus, the most uh, evil, evil is, um, is worse when it is committed against innocent people. And it is even worse when that evil is especially terrifying and painful. And, and the cross, the passion, when Jesus was tortured and crucified, the most innocent person who ever lived, enduring torture and, and the more, most painful death you can imagine. This is the most evil event, not just a perfect person, but God himself in flesh, tortured and crucified for us. Mm -hmm. The most evil event in the history of the universe, and yet God fully intentioned it to happen. And he fully intentioned it to happen for good. Yeah. So we can know with perfect confidence that God uses evil things for good purposes. And we can know with perfect confidence what good thing God is working towards with the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's ever since Adam and Eve, God has been, ever since they, they sinned in the garden, God has been actively working yes. to to bring Jesus there to to um redeem and restore yeah, yeah to redeem us from our brokenness from our our own personal desires he's yeah. he's taken this punishment for us um but yeah you said it's all intention for good god god intentions has good intentions uh even in our sufferings but yeah but that doesn't is that going to make me feel better <laughs> it often doesn't um this is one of those things, right? Uh, these are all maybe nice answers. These are these are nice thoughts um, in a vague, impersonal sense. Maybe they help us feel better. They resolve philosophical issues for us. Um, but when when you're in the middle of suffering, when it's you, when it's someone you love and you're broken and you're hurting and you're crying, how does this distant promise of one day help. And um, to talk about that, let, let's get back to the story. Um, Martha, Martha, Martha says that, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then listen to listen to that. I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha, Martha, like so many of us can, says, I know about the distant promises. I, I know that this thing is happening. I know that this is going to be redeemed. But right now, my brother is dead I am hurting. I am broken, Jesus. I don't know what to do. What is Jesus' response in that moment? Verse 25, Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? God is not a means to end our suffering. God is not a tool to make us happy. He is the end. He is the thing we are working towards. We're not working mm -hmm. towards a place of beyond pain. We're working towards God, relationship with him. That is it. You look in the book of Philippians. Um, Paul says, I have learned the secret to being content in every circumstance, in evil and in good. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. It is in being focused on Jesus that we are comforted. And it's more than that too. Um, we'll skip ahead in our story um, to verse 35. And what does it say? Jesus, now he's talked with Martha, he's talked with Mary, and he's before the tomb of his friend. And there's mourners all around weeping. And it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then they take him to the tomb. It's a very simple sentence. It says, Jesus wept. Yeah. So we don't serve an impersonal God who tells us to just wait for one day. He doesn't tell us to suck it up and, and bear it with a grin and, and just pretend everything's okay until we get to heaven. No, he knows how much we hurt even now. And he hurts more than we do. He feels pain and he weeps with us. And so as we walk through life, yes, we look forward to the glorious future. Yet we do not drown in sorrows because Jesus is hope and that hope is always with us. And yet, yet we mourn because we live in a fallen, corrupted, sinful world and Jesus mourns with us. And yet there's this intimacy that, that is forged through weeping that draws us even closer to God. Look how Martha responds. Go back. Jesus says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is come into the world. As we heard, God draws us closer to him like a father embracing, comforting his weeping child. So, so Quinn, the question, how could a loving God allow suffering? Because we ruined the perfect world God created, and yet he is actively using evil to forward his perfectly good plans. And yet this evil does not please him and he hurts with us mm -hmm. that'd be my answer yeah man yeah i i really like that um i think that's i think that's the best possible answer we can come up with yeah um yeah and i think for some of us some of us it's where do we go next mm. we know God is there with us. He's He's with us as we suffer. When when we reach out, yeah. um, He's with us, even if we don't feel it in the moment. But I think, um, yeah, as we as we hear this and as we go through life and as I go through sufferings, Chase goes through sufferings, all of this, um, we need to turn and and look to God, no matter how hard it is. Yeah. Um, as we've looked at the atheist and the Buddhist uh, views, if you turn to those or any other view, it's not going to satisfy you. No. And you might, you're still going to hurt. Yeah. I think that's part of it. But um, 
as you hurt, don't be afraid to cry out to God. Mm. Don't be afraid to to ask, where are you, God? Yeah. Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Um, those are some powerful words. Yeah. Um, some uh, some great writers have asked that question, mm-hmm. God, where are you? Yeah. And I think asking those questions is an amazing place, is, is a place to start. Yeah. Because asking those questions means you're not just sitting in it. Yeah, absolutely. You're open to discussion. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and finally, I mean, this kind of thing, for me anyways, in my experience, has led me to worship God even more, wrestle with him, yes, be angry with him, definitely sometimes. And yeah, you cry out to him. But it leads you to worship. Um, Because for me, I've realized my brokenness and my helplessness. And yet you also see God's goodness and faithfulness. And your soul is kind of like crushed between those two huge facts. And so you just cry out to God in like helpless worship saying, God, I know you're good and I'm not. So just help me right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I, and I, I, I've told this story a lot to people who know me, but I, I, it's the best way I think to illustrate this and end a discussion on suffering. Uh, There was a man named Horatio Spafford and he was a successful lawyer and real estate investor in the 1870s. Um, But he lost all of his finances in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And shortly afterwards, his dear four-year-old son died of scarlet fever, four years old. So thinking a vacation would be good for him and his family, he sent his wife and daughters on a ship to England, and he was planning on joining them after he'd concluded some business at home. And in a sickening twist of fate, that boat collided with another and sank, and all four of his daughters drowned. Only his wife Anna survived, and upon arriving in England, she sent this telegram back to him. Saved alone, what shall I do? So Spafford immediately boarded the next boat to England to be with his wife. And the captain of the ship, who knew of the tragic death of his daughters, let Spafford know as they passed over the exact spot where his children had drowned. And Spafford, who was a strong man of God, and he had penned several well-known hymns in his life, in that moment he wrote a song. In that moment he wrote some lyrics. And uh, if you've ever heard um, the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, um, then you know the words that he wrote in that moment. And it is just an astonishing portrait of a man broken and yet utterly at peace and in awe of God. He says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that's just one of the verses. Um, and he goes on and I won't do the whole thing here, but uh, it's beautiful. You should go listen to that hymn. So <laughs> anyways, uh, how could a loving God allow suffering? Yeah, it's a hard question. It's a personal question, um, but we serve such a beautiful God who, who knows that we have these questions. And so um, dive into his word, dive into the Bible and you'll see his character and you'll see his answers. So um, yeah, do you want to wrap us up? Yeah. Um, 
Man, you almost got me there, Chase. I almost got myself. Almost started bawling there. My goodness. Quinn, we don't cry. We're men. Right. Forgot about it. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, as always, tough subject. We're going through apologetics. Yeah. Um, But man, if you guys have more questions, reach out. Send them our way. If you have Um, stories to share, testimonies to share, we'd love to hear. Yeah. I'm just like mourn wrestle and praise god together so Mm -hmm. yeah and i think yeah we also we're also praying for you guys Mm -hmm. for everybody who listens and for people who don't um and if you guys uh need prayer reach out to us 100 percent. we're we're definitely here for you guys you can email us you can dm us on instagram yeah um we we want to be here for you um whether you're personally suffering, you know, someone who's suffering, um, reach out to us, um, as, as we want to help you in whatever way possible. It may not be huge, but, um, we definitely want to, want to help you guys out. Yeah. That's good. So next week, remind us where are we going next week? How can we know if the Bible is reliable and true? Yeah. yeah. How do we know the Bible is the word of God? How do we know it's reliable? Um, And that'll be the last one in our apologetic series, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, anyways, it's been a fun series to put together and I'm excited that last episode is going to be really good. It's one of my, these are three of my favorite questions to discuss with people. So looking forward to that. Um, Again, any comments, questions, concerns, chairs to be thrown, bitter comments to be made, give them right to us. Um, And yeah, love you guys and we'll see you later. See ya.